Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Less than 3% of venture capital funding goes to women founders. Yet studies show that women founders drive two times as much revenue as male founders and have better IRRs. Bobby Kershan and Kathy Hurley wrote Innovate Hers to highlight female business leaders to discover how women can leverage their entrepreneurial mindset to advance their careers. The book features the stories of 29 entrepreneurial women, including those that overcame immense adversity, including abject poverty, to achieve successes. Each story is more inspiring than the prior, but decades of research into entrepreneurial mindset profiles provides a framework to view the successes. Kershan describes how purpose-driven female leaders tend to overcome the propensity of women to be risk-averse. Female entrepreneurs are more likely to find their calling from a passion born of empathy. Bobby Karshan, so great to have you on the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, so you wrote a book, you did a thing, uh, and, and we've known each other for many years. Tell me what the origin story of the book. Well, that's a great story. So thanks for asking. Good place to start. So I have been looking at innovation ecosystems for my whole career and have been doing research around entrepreneurial mindset. And I have been writing academic books and have a whole bookshelf of them, of which nobody buys more than three copies, but it gets you accessibility and acceptance at the university model. So I decided it was time to share my research in a more in a broader audience that had more of a um, more of an opportunity for people to understand what I'd been doing, but through telling stories. And probably the closest author and one of the authors that I really enjoy reading, two authors really, is uh, obviously Malcolm Gladwell, because he's a researcher. He tells, gives a lot of his stories, but they're all based on research. But you never think you're reading a research book when you read Malcolm Gladwell's books. The other person that is very similar to that that I also like is Adam Grant. Both of them kind of take research, but look at it from 
a fun storytelling kind of way. So I decided that I had a lot of stories having worked with entrepreneurs, as I'm sure you do, both humorous, some sad, some very interesting, but a lot of entrepreneurs that had great stories. And I had a lot of research and data around the mindset of entrepreneurs. I'd been doing this research for over 10 years at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I started to dissect the research, I found that there was a distinct difference between male entrepreneurs and women entrepreneurs. And I decided I ought to look at those stories and find out why. And then the biggest struggle I had in going from the data to the research was I didn't want this to be a book just for education. I wanted it to look at the impact. And most of the companies we invest in in education are having a great social impact, but I didn't just want to look at those. So I spent a lot of time looking at the research behind purpose-driven organizations. And I decided that that's where I wanted to start. I wanted to tell stories of women that were running organizations or in organizations that had a purpose-driven entrepreneurial mindset. So that's how the book came to be. We interviewed over a hundred uh, women entrepreneurs. We had data from hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs, both men and women. And we put the book together to be fun to read the stories, as well as know some of the data behind it. You've been sort of both an academic and an investor and an operator. You've kind of done everything except probably political office in, in your career. Never. <laughs> um, t- tell me first, give, give your academic credentials. Uh, that drove a lot of the, the, the pieces of this puzzle. Yeah, it did. And um, it's all part of what I call the innovation ecosystem. And I think there's four quadrants in it. I think the best uh, companies that I look at have people that are understand research. They understand both the market research, the academic research. They understand the field, education or healthcare or climate, whatever it's in. So you have, and they understand investment and they also are the entrepreneur or the person. So I have done all of that. So I kind of fit that model. I started as a teacher. I was a, studied mathematics. And then I got my master's degree in computer science at a time that um, computer science was not what women did. And also it was very hard to do computer science. And I tell this story in the book that when I went to get my master's degree, They didn't want to give me my degree or accept my thesis because I wrote about the impact and the impact of education technology on kids and learning. And they and my advisor said, well, they'll never use computers in the schools. That's telling you how old I am. But anyway, um, I had 32. So I'll just let everybody know. I've been 32 for a long time. So anyway, um, so that's how I got my start in looking at this is an academic. And then I went on to be the head of academic computing and work in universities for 11 years at Virginia Tech and at Hollins College. I decided after 11 years when the president, who was a friend, said, you know, Bobby, you're just way too entrepreneurial and innovative to work at the university. And I looked at her and I said, you got to be kidding me. University is supposed to be the most innovative places in the world. And she laughed. But it's um, so I decided to go on and leave and build then I became an entrepreneur. I actually developed educational children's products. I developed some of the very first products for Microsoft, Apple, and I was behind the design of the products for SimCity for kids. And then I decided that I would was approached sitting at a conference 
by who woman that is now become my partner and was the uh, partner at um, Robertson Stevens, if I would help her look at the industry and I became an investor. I didn't know the difference between an investment banker and a commercial banker, but she came to me and I had my doctorate in instructional design. And she came to me and said, Bobby, we really want you to work with us because you know both the pedagogy of the products we're looking at and you also know the technology. So I went on to do that and was then we ran a private equity fund of $50 million to invest in education. And then I went on to leave that and acquired a company that I ran and we took public in the UK, language learning company. And, uh, and here I am today back at a university and investing um, through the university as well as personal investing. I uh, went to the university to innovate because education schools are going to die if they don't innovate. And you're at University of Pennsylvania, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say universities need to innovate, why do you think it's so hard for universities to take the lessons from the private sector into what they do? Well, I think there's uh, something I've written about it. I write a Forbes column and I've written about this and digital transformation of universities. But I think there's three reasons. One, we reward faculty the wrong way at universities today. We still have an old school model of rewarding them for publishing in peer-reviewed journals. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, but a lot of universities that people that are innovating at universities are building digital products, are building courses, um, online courses, and they're not rewarded for that. So they have to be some way to get those courses peer-reviewed, which will help them and all and also help universities. Um, stay within their boundaries. So one is that we're not innovative about the model we we reward faculty members. The second is, and this is a big one and one I wish we would change, we accept students into the university backwards. We say, come and study some subject you don't know about, instead of saying to them, come to the university because you're passionate about a problem you want to solve. We tell entrepreneurs that. We invest in them by saying, give me the problem you want to solve. And if it's a big problem, I might give you some money. But at the university, we say, pay us a lot of money, come and learn, but we don't know what problems you're going to solve. And we have this this lack of people studying how to solve problems versus how to... um, learn a particular subject. So they philosophically may study history, what's great, but they should be coming in and saying, I want to study history because I'm going to solve X, Y, and Z, or I'm going to look at a problem. And I've always thought we should ask students to fill out an application, come to the university and be part of a team that then includes faculty and courses and other students and outside experts to solve this problem. So when they graduate four years later, they actually have worked on a problem that they've gonna solve and they select the courses that will help them solve that problem. Um, So we've got it backwards at universities. (laughs) All right, well, let's dive into the book then because uh, I I actually, look, there's a rabbit hole here of psychological research in the book, but can you summarize what the key phrase is, well, there are probably two key phrases, but one of the key phrases is definitely the entrepreneurial mindset. What is the entrepreneurial mindset, first of all? So as I said, there's a lot of research that's been done around entrepreneurial mindset, and there's pretty much an agreed upon a a set of skills and traits. 
Skills are things that I can teach you. Traits are things that you're born with and that you have, that you come in with. And when you look at those two, we can evaluate whether an entrepreneur, not necessarily whether they'll make raise a lot of money, but whether or not they ha- are an entrepreneurial, they have the mindset to be successful and that they are, and what skills they may need to improve upon. Um, so that's what an entrepreneurial mindset, it's the way we think about innovation and the way we apply those skills and traits to it. And why did you choose that rubric for the focus to kind of frame the whole book? I did because I run the first master's program in education entrepreneurship at the University of Pennsylvania. And I kept the every year when I look at the students, I say, well, can I teach them to be an entrepreneur or are you born an entrepreneur? And I realized I couldn't teach them to be an entrepreneur, but I could give them a set of skills that would help them. But more than that, I could look at their mindsets and help them improve the skills that they needed. And so I always every year decide whether I'm teaching people to go out and create businesses or whether I'm teaching them to think entrepreneurially. Well, one of the chapters is actually um, talk about like the restraints on entrepreneurs and how a lot of a lot of what shapes the entrepreneurial journey is financial restraint. And that's especially prevalent for female entrepreneurs. Can you talk about some of one of your favorite stories? And there are a lot of these stories in the book with someone who sort of how for these restraints, they drove actually becoming successful. Yeah, I think we call them inhibitors. And um, it's a good chapter in the book. And then we have a chapter chapter called activators. I'm a, I'm a negative person. So I'll stick with, I'll start with inhibitors. <laughs> we can also talk about activators. Well, and, and you're right. Financial is, and there's lots of sort of um, doors into the financial inhibitor. One is that many women that become entrepreneurs, and we can talk about this story, grow up in a home where they 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 may be the first to go to college. We have several women, and Jamie Candy is an example of that. Um, she now runs Edmentum, very successful company. Jamie grew up in a home where she had um, her parents hadn't gone to college. Her, she was not she was living, I wouldn't say in poverty, but certainly under. She was underserved and she didn't have, she wasn't learning to read. And if it hadn't been for a teacher in the school that realized how smart she was, she says she may not have ever gone on to learn to read. And so one of the inhibitors is the fact your environment and the financial support you have. And many, many women entrepreneurs are lucky enough to start because if they are married, they may have some financial umbrella to help them um, get started. But many women that can't become an entrepreneur because they have their single parent and they have children at home and where, how are they going to leave them and take the risk that it, it happens? And we did find risk was an important issue in the book. Women entrepreneurs, because they're entrepreneurs, are highly regarded they, the same as men. They're high risk takers in general, but they're more thoughtful risk takers. They're more calculated about what they do because they have to look at more of the um factors that contribute to them becoming an entrepreneur. So we found that women, one was they didn't have the money, they came from backgrounds that didn't, or if they did have the money, they couldn't take the risk because they may have been the person at home taking care of the home, even if they had a a spouse or partner that could support them. And the third financial risk that women take is that they tend to be, because of their personal sensitivity being so high, which we talk about in the book, they tend to um, sometimes, while I think in the long run, being highly sensitive is good, 
it did it does influence their concern about the money that they're running the company. You've probably seen this, the number of women entrepreneurs that start companies and never take a salary in the beginning. Um, a male entrepreneur would never do that. They want to pay the people that work for them, women, rather than pay themselves. And I always say, but you can't give somebody your business model that you don't have any salary in here for yourself. It's not going to work. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that you talk about is um, the words people use. And, and one of the words that uh, people don't want to use, women specifically don't want to use, is need to achieve, right? And sort of the concept of like, taking care of themselves while they're building a company. Um, and, and instead, women use passion for why they start a business. Why are the women uh, you spoke to so hesitant to claim the need to achieve for their own, the need to like, you know, get paid a salary, win? Uh, why is that a bad word for many of these women? I think it's because they there was a whole movement. And, and by the way, we interviewed all people from all over the world, all different ages, and quite diverse. They all said that are surprised in the book that none of them picked the need to achieve as one of their strengths. Except when you talk to them about need to achieve, they were all overachievers. But they didn't want to say that because then they fell in the category of being aggressive versus assertive. And men don't really differentiate between aggression and assertiveness. They think if it's positively used, and I don't mean this negatively, but if it's positively used, women see aggression as bad versus assertive. So they don't want people to think they have this overachiever attitude. They don't want people to think that they're the ones that are telling other people what to do. They want to have that success, but they want it to be much more subdued. Is that, do you think, innate in some way to women as opposed to men, or do you think that's societal? It sounds like you you interviewed people from many different geographies. So is there is this a nature versus nurture issue? Somewhat. I think that the real issue is that women, they tend to have high empathy or personal sensitivity scales and high need to achieve. They don't, they want to emphasize their empathy. And that's a positive thing. Three things came out women tend to be able to have teams that stay with them longer. They have teams that are more collaborative and they also are able to fire people better, which was kind of an interesting finding because they always fire people thinking about the other person. They always start usually by saying, you're not bad for me or you're not doing a good job. They often say, this is not the right fit for you and let me help you find the right fit for you when you leave. And I hear this from women all the time and all the women in our book talked about that. So the need to achieve is really part of their empathy, but it's the way they come about achievement that they don't see it the same way. Another really compelling uh, rubric you use is sort of this passion, empathy, and persistence. Um, and how sort of you tell a story of a woman named Zoe Timms who sort of like, because of her empathy to a student in India, you know, you, you can tell the story better than I can, but like she totally changed her life based on an empathetic experience. Can you, can you describe? how those feelings kind of change and inform the entrepreneurial process. So Zoe's a good example, and she's continued to work in India, and she had a really big revolution. The company's, you know, growing. But one of the things, she, when she was over there, she got really involved with this woman and what it was doing and how she could help change the lives of many more women. So, so she was a student. She met another woman in her class who was an overachieving person, 
she confronted them and then came back to the uh, Indian woman's home and discovered she lived in, in pretty abject poverty. And she decided that there were other women. This woman had done it on her own, but this woman had described how what kind of help she would have needed to get out of that and, and be where she at. So remember, this woman was successful, the one she met, but they she realized that there were lots of women that could be successful, but they didn't have the help they needed. And that's what Zoe went on to do. And now she also realized that this company should be run by people in India. So she returned from India. She works with her team still globally, but she's now back in the States helping those that team grow. So I consider her, you said inhibitors and, and accelerants. Like, Tell me about an accelerant that you think is really, really an important piece to the puzzle. I think the big accelerant that I uh, is the empathy that people can accelerate because they're more conscious and more careful about what they think about. The other accelerant, and we have a whole chapter on this, is the mentors. Those that have the best mentors um, are the ones that succeed. And they're and one a very interesting uh, question we asked: Who was your mentor? I would say most of the women mentors, depending, and this was an age differentiator. Older women that were in the book had male and mentors that took them under their wing. Younger women have tended to gravitate towards female mentors. And the other fascinating thing is when we ask them who was their mentor between their mother and their father, even if they were from a home underserved, I would say 95%, I haven't done the calculation, but almost to every woman said their mother was their mentor and their role model, not their father, even though the father may have been the successful one. In many cases, there wasn't a father in the home, but in many there were. And the mother was because she had to manage this family. She had to manage all the money. She often worked out of the home. Sometimes she ran a business. Um, one of the women's mother ran a, was a hairstylist and she saw what she had to go through to, to do that. It wasn't a high paying job, but she made it work. She had a business, she had these children at home, that kind of thing. I thought your chapters or your and it really extended throughout the book was this focus on on role models, right? It wasn't just like one one it it almost seemed like it was the secret sauce that no one talked about. Yeah, the mentor and the secret sauce, yeah. I mean, I dedicated my book, the book to my mother because she was my role model. I mean could, could you describe it's a very moving you and and your co-author had similar kind of so why don't you describe your story quickly? Because I think it's informative. Well, I um, I obviously found I got involved in in this because my mother, who went back to school and got her MSW in social work while we were young, she went on to run a large organization. And she um, and it wasn't, you know, I came from a middle class family, but, it, you know, but it was still she worked hard and it was part of what we saw as a role model. And I saw what she could do to make a difference. And she my mother took me to you know, to the Martin Luther King March and to the Women Feminist March and to Kennedy's funeral. I mean, she was a real activist. So that comes where the social impact, I really have that in my own thinking. And I watch the women, most of these women get into it because they want to make a difference. Look at Sherry Weston, who's from Sesame and we interviewed in the book. She was running this large hundred million project she won for MacArthur to help the refugee children in Jordan from Syria. So, uh, and now she's the president of Sesame. Yeah, interesting. She talks a lot about, she was. She talks about risk acceptance, right? So like her chapter is about women, not the calculated risk comment you made earlier. Right. <laughs> what helps a woman sort of make that leap 
to take that calculated risk? I think that women are very innovative and they, but they are scared to go out there unless they've got all of their ducks in order. And what does make them make the jump is that impact they can have. Every single one of the women, as you talked about Zoe and Anjali from India, who runs a large organization that helps 3 million children a year, um, all of them made the calculated risk, but they went and took the risk because they could make a difference. Sherry says it very clearly in her story. The other person that's a great story is Lisa Hall, who now runs Apollo's Social Impact Fund. But Lisa went to Wharton, then went to Harvard, and she talks about in her story that she wanted to make a difference, but she had a lot of school debt and she, you know, was she needed to pay it back. So she went to work for a bank and she was lucky, she says, to be assigned to a group that gave funding out to low-income housing. And she was, she says in the book, it was wonderful. I got this job where I could make a difference, do well and do good. And women say that over and over again. So that's what makes them make the jump. They look at their, all the risks and then they say, can I really take the risks and make a difference? If they can't make a difference, they don't take the risk. I'm not sure if you talk about this book, I didn't see it, but one of the stats that really amazes me is only 2%, something like 2% of venture capital goes to, to women. Oh, yeah, it's, that's in the book. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. Why is that? And what can we do to change that? I think it's because women come with a different perspective of what they want to achieve, and they don't bring you the what you're expecting as a traditional VC. They bring you their passion. They, they're very calculated. They often have better business plans. And what's another fact that we mentioned in the book that doesn't get very much forward for investors is women return more on the dollar that you give them than men do um, on the in the in the early stages they will return you more more money it might take a little longer but they will return you more money and in addition they will um calculated you know they'll make quite uh excessive calculations to make a pivot they're not just going to pivot on a dime because four people say, you got to do this differently. They look at all the options and they make the changes effectively. So that's why they return more money. Yeah, there's a bought, you quote a Boston consulting group study that for every dollar of venture capital funding received, women-led businesses generate 78 cents versus men that generate 31 cents. And, and I, I guess what I struggle with is, you know, clearly you, you lay out a very compelling case for the role of women and entrepreneurs. Yet we we don't see as many as as one would think with the returns getting bigger. If you were the PR agent for getting more venture capital and and and, and funding for women entrepreneurs, what would you what would you say? Well, one, I think women need to be stronger about their success. They need to be clearer about describing the problem they're solving. I think women, while they want to have an impact so therefore they pick hard problems to solve they have to articulate them better women are are tend to be focused on their teams which goes to what we talked about before in terms of the way they work and the need to achieve they work on internal um, pr versus external pr so they need to do a better job and they also need to network better if you you i've been going to events as long as you have and if you look around the room i even said this you know at recent meetings you look around the room there's not women in the room so they we need more women in the room 
um, than we have that are either VCs um, or are getting encouraged to become involved in the industry, or they're getting mentored by people that are in, the, in that space. Well, what do you make of kind of the all raise and sort of some of the groups that have started in the last few years, sort of this regeneration of the women in entrepreneurship market? I, I like those groups. I think they're going to make a big difference. I like the fact that there's more women starting their own um, venture groups that uh, they're and they are having trouble raising their own first funds, but that's changing. We're seeing them raise money. Um, you've seen people. You, you know, women in the space that have begun to. We also see that social impact funds tend to be looking at women. And the other area that I really like that I see women going on, I just got off the phone with an entrepreneur. I see women going to family offices that are women run family offices that are now not just making philanthropic donations, but are making um, social impact donations. And they're they're getting a lot of money that way. Yeah, we had, um, you know, gender lens investing is becoming uh, in increasingly important. And, you know, we had uh, Jenny Abramson and Heidi Patel uh, on as one, one example of that. Jenny's probably one of the best in the field looking at women and social impact. Yeah, yeah so they, they, they did a very compelling Better Money podcast as well. You know, one of the things that really struck me, you, you, you have this term throughout called like innovate hers, right? And you spell Innovate H-E-R-S, right? right so right. can you describe that term of art and sort of why you chose that term? Oh my gosh, we spent months thinking of a title for this book and every week we'd come up with a new one. And we were basically looking at some of the um, innovate. We wanted to have our title include three terms. We wanted it to um, show innovation. We wanted it to show women and we wanted it to show entrepreneurial mindset. So all of those words and purpose-driven, We all of those words were hard to put into a title and into a subtitle. And so we were just playing with words and we we came up with innovators just on a random call. We liked it. It wasn't taken by anybody. We could get the URL for our website. And it also expressed what we wanted to uh, say. You know, one of the things that was clear, and I, I thought you were going to say there's some big research around innovators. No, but it I, was uh, just one of those <laughs> things we were playing, you know, we were drinking wine one night, <laughs> Kathy and I and a few other people. Uh, well, I, I would love to be a fly on that wall. But um, one of the, the, the most, you know, you tell a lot of stories to the book. The ones that I found um, most amazing were the total bootstrap success stories. You have one, uh, you know, Sabari Raja, you, you have others throughout. What is the thing, and you, besides mentorship, which I know you spend a lot of time on, but specifically for people who are in this extreme, who, who face extreme adversity and yet still overcome that, what is, what is, the, what is the thing that kind of makes, gives these the opportunity to create these exceptions that prove the rule? Well, Sabari is a good example of both an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. Sabari came up with an amazing career at Texas Instruments. She was moving right along. She stayed there and she had the opportunity. She came up with the idea for Nepris and she made the jump. And I think the, the thing that gave her the impetus is that she saw this problem. And again, she wanted to solve it and that she had, you know, she was walking away from a relatively successful career and financially successful as well as her work she had done had been successful and impactful. She went back to India um, 
with the company and she said she didn't want to do go back there she didn't, she wanted to come back and do this and she came back and started it i think the other person that has a, a really good um reason for doing it is krish uh Shante, who krish is now the head of the lutheran um refugee committee and she had worked for uh the state department she worked in the white house with hillary um she had run for governor of maryland and came in on the primaries. She did very well in the primaries. She didn't. She didn't become the you know one of the candidates. And she talked about um, why should she take a job with um, the you know when this job came up. She didn't know if she'd apply. She'd never really worked in that space. But it, the same thing happened. She'd come from a family that had come as refugees. She decided she could make a difference, and it was a big problem to solve. So women are doing this because they're passionate. They're purpose-driven, and they think they can solve the problem. They don't do something they don't think they can't do. Women are very good about that. Men, on the other hand, doesn't matter if they can't do it or not. They're going to try. Men always know what the right answer is. That's, exactly. that's the great thing about being a man. We don't have to worry about, exactly. about doubt and uncertainty. Which is a good thing. I mean, I, I've invested a lot of male entrepreneurs as well as in women. but. <laughs> To what extent, though, I mean, the, the things you're mentioning, you said at this top of the show that some skills are teachable and some schools skills are innate. And, and a lot of what you're talking about, things like mentorship and, and sort of risk taking, they, they don't actually feel all that teachable to me. So as a faculty member, what are the things that you think really are teachable that as a professor or a teacher or even a mentor, you can impart upon someone to, to become an innovator? Well, we all, you know, you've looked at incubators. I've run one. You've looked. I think there's a set of skills that we can teach. We can teach the ability to analyze financial, you know, look at the financial expects you're going to take. Therefore, that's the skill of being able to um, persist and to be able to look at the uh, this problem and the solution, organization, um, helping your team think about the future. Those are things we can teach you to do. We can tell you to be more strategic, to help you learn to be more strategic. We can help you learn to be um, persistent at your work and what that means and how do you get the capacity to spend the time looking at strategy. And so those are the kind of things we can help you learn to do better or do. Things we can't change for you is your need to achieve. That's, a, that's something that comes inside of you. Um, you know, it's not something some people never have this ability to achieve, except they're very successful working on a team and being part of the team and contributing. And, and you know, I have two children, both different personalities. My son has been extremely successful, but he has no desire to run a team. He doesn't want to manage people. He wants to look at strategic work and business development. And he's I don't know if it's luck or whatever, but he's just gone through two startups. He's part of the San Francisco and both went public and he did very well because he was very early at both of them. So uh, uh, so my daughter, on the other hand, is running a workforce company right now. And she has she's a typical first child overachiever, need to achieve, very successful in her own way. So I think it's something that is born. I can't change their personalities. Although I, I think both of your kids probably had a great mentor at home, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say <laughs> that. Both are, yes. 
Well, I'm not sure they'd say that, but maybe. <laughs> My daughter just learned that maybe having her mother have make some introductions for her is not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it is truly remarkable how much your parents learn between the time that a teenager becomes a 25-year-old. So right. it's, it's exactly it's, it's amazing. Really... It's it's do you have one there yet? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm not there yet. But uh I guess kind of as we come to a come to the end of the the time together. When you kind of go out and if you were to sort of like make a recommendation to if, if a woman or or let's start with a woman or a man uh, kind of mid-career but growing um, wants to support innovators and sort of female entrepreneurship, what are the three or four things that you think are most important for, for those folks to do? One, I think they have to help them fund them. So we need men out there that are in this position to have women have funding to fund them. We need men to be very careful about what they consider leadership. We always say, well, he's not CEO material. He's a great CEO. And I call it the bozo theory. We often hire men are constantly rehired, even if they just failed at the last company. And they always say, oh, well, he did such a good job doing X. So let's make him the next CEO. We need to be more conscious that women are going, women are more thoughtful. So we need to put them in CEO positions with a different set of criteria of what would make them successful. And men need to read this book because I think they're going to understand this mindset of women and they'll be able to apply that. And then I think the last thing that's most important is I think men in positions of influence, financial positions, and even entrepreneurs need to be cognizant of the fact that women will bring a set of skills to the table that they don't have. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. Now, I'm going to ask you the harder question. Uh (laughs) What's your advice to women mid-career to help other women achieve the type of entrepreneurial success you highlight? Great question. It's one I love because um, I remember when I was getting my doctorate, that my doctor advisor, I was going to put all these men on my committee. And he said, Bobby, you don't want those Um, that person on your committee and you don't want this woman on your committee because she had a really bad time when she was a doctoral student and she takes it out on women. So I think women need to be cognizant of the mentors they pick. They need to be clear that that person is working with them. I hear women often say that I don't like working for a woman boss. I prefer working for a male boss particularly if they're high achievers. So I think they need to carefully pick their mentors. They need to understand that they are not only working to do a good job, they're working to think about what their career would be and make sure that that's what's coming across, that they have a career path. I hear men say, well, this job's a dead end. Women very rarely say that. Um, And what they'll do is just leave that job and go on. They won't go to their boss and say, hey, I want to go move up here. What do I do? Um, So I think those are the things that are most important. And women need to be careful that they that their calculated risk doesn't get in the way of their ability to be passionate. Well, uh, encouraging passionate engagement and um, sort of a modified, almost uh, lean in approach to the world, it sounds like. Right. Exactly. Um, well, look, this is great, Bobby. You wrote an incredibly important book for female entrepreneurs and innovators uh, coming up. Thank you for being on the podcast and being a mentor, probably, hopefully, to, to so many people over the years. Thank you. This has been fun. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. 
Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.